selection of the minor prophets. We've taken a bit of a break from that for a number of different reasons, uh, but uh, we have been looking uh, firstly at Jonah, uh, Obadiah, Haggai, and we've come to the book of Malachi. I've said all the way through two very important things as we come to the minor prophets. Uh, the first one is that they are only called minor because of their size, not because of their importance. They are the, the smaller prophets, not like the bigger letters of uh, Isaiah and Je- uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So they're only small in size, not in stature or in importance. And the second thing that we have said consistently is that when it comes to the minor prophets, there is absolutely no shame whatsoever in turning to the contents page of your Bible to find where they are, with the possible exception of Malachi, because Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you're able to find Matthew, just work your way back from Matthew, and uh, there you will find Malachi. This morning we're going to read from chapter 2 and verse 10. I'm going to do something that I try not to do, and usually I'm going to read from a translation which differs from the Pew Bible translation. So it's still the NIV, but the one I'm reading from is the NIV 2011. The Pew Bible is NIV 1984, and that has a slight difference for one of the verses that we are going to read together. So if you want to read from the translation that I'm reading from, if you're able to see that from where you are on the screen, Uh, then that's the new version of the NIV. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, May the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to Him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife 
says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Amen. Well, we are all, truth be told, I think, a wee bit tired of questions. I forgot my notes, now I forgot my wee clicker. We're all a wee bit tired of questions, uh, such as, should Scotland be an independent nation? Or uh, should the United Kingdom remain a member of the European Union or leave the European Union? Then there was mention of another referendum, and I was so relieved, truth be told, you may be different, but I was so relieved when that was kicked into the long grass because I've just been asked too many questions. Just go to Edinburgh or go to, to uh, Westminster and come back in four years and then ask me a question, but don't, don't keep asking me questions. It's exhausting. Once every four years is more than enough, and yet questions do matter, don't they? Questions and the way that we choose to answer those questions can shape the very lives that we live. Do you love me? Will you marry me? How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? The way you answer questions like that will have a profound impact upon the life that you live and even the person that you become. Questions matter, and I want to leave us this morning with a question that matters even more than all of those questions, much more than all of those questions. Here is our question for this morning. How much is too much? How much is too much? We're on a journey through a selection of the minor prophets. Together, we looked at Jonah the man who tried to run away from God. He ran a race that no one can ever hope to win. Then we looked at Obadiah, God's righteous wrath, God's righteous rage against the Edomites. The Edomites, you'll remember, had um, applauded and supported the Babylonians as they had attacked Jerusalem and conquered uh, that city, conquered Judea conquered the people of God and enslaved them, and he, uh, the Lord, rebuked uh, the Edomites for their rejoicing in the destruction of Jerusalem and for their betrayal of their own brothers. Then we came to Haggai, so a bit of time now has passed. Many of, of, of God's people, when, when Jerusalem was conquered, uh, by Babylon. The Babylonians took a lot of the, the best of the, the, the people who lived in Jerusalem, the, the, the Jews. They were, they were taken to Babylon. They lived there. They settled there. But then, as with all empires, Babylon was conquered and crushed by another empire. And the king of the Persians was moved by God to let God's people go back to Jerusalem if they wanted to. Some of God's people 
in Babylon had quite nice, comfortable lives, and they decided just to stay. They had put down roots, and they were happy where they were. But 50,000 people heard the call of God to return to the city of God and to rebuild the temple of God. So these 50,000 people headed out of Babylon in this great journey back to Jerusalem, back to, to Judah, uh, and to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And it had started so well, so promising was their journey and was their work. But before long, they got discouraged and the work on the temple of the Lord stopped. So they built their houses, they did up their houses, they renovated, they looked after their own land, their own houses, but they left the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, unbuilt. And so God raised up uh, two great prophets, one of whom was Haggai, to remind his people to put first things first, to reassess their priorities, and to rebuild the temple of their gods. And then came Malachi. So by now, the temple has been fully rebuilt. All seems well. They are comfortable. They are secure in Jerusalem. But in their comfort, as is often the case, they've forgotten how much the Lord has blessed them, and they've forgotten how much they need the Lord. They've begun to compromise. They've begun to, to, to fall away from God himself. They have somehow managed to forget the love of the Lord, and so they began to give God their dregs, not the first and the best, but the last and the worst. The, the offerings that they gave to God were the things that they, they really wouldn't want for themselves. You remember we, we said it was like the stuff that you put in one of those charity bags not because you care for the charity itself, but because you've got a load of junk and you just want someone to take it away. That was the kind of offerings that they were giving to God and expecting Him to be pleased with these things. And so last time we were in Malachi, we looked at the rebuke the Lord gave primarily to the priests for accepting these offerings. And in accepting these offerings, and in the, the, um, the teaching that they gave, they dishonored the name of God, and they caused God's people to stumble. But now this week, the Lord goes even further. He spe speaks through His messenger. The word Malachi actually means my messenger. He speaks through His messenger, Malachi, about the lives of His people outside the walls of the temple. And so we come to the question that I posed at the start of the sermon, how much is too much to give to God? How much is too much to give to God? Maybe you think, well, up to chapter 2, verse 9, that's fine. You know, the Lord wants His people to give better sacrifices, better offerings, the priests are to up their game, that's fine. I'll, I'll come to church, and if the sermon says, give a bit more money, we're going to have a new heating system that's going to cost £21,000. Give a bit more money, 
that's fine. Sing a bit louder, that's fine. Be a bit nicer to each other in church, that's fine. Sit a bit closer to the front in the evening service, that's, that's fine. Because this is God's domain. This is God's domain, these four walls, this building, this is the religious part of my life. God's domain and God's day. It's the day we call the Lord's Day. So Sunday, in this place, God gets to tell me what to do, what to give. But when it comes to the rest of my life, when it comes to Monday morning, when it comes to my home, or my workplace, or my relationships, that's too much. That's too far. Don't tell me who I should marry or how I should live my life, because that's mine. If that's what you think, you will struggle with Malachi's message. We're going to look at the whole passage. In a sense, we could get away with just looking, I think, at verse 10, the first verse. So Malachi 2 verse 10 says, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? And that's kind of picked up again, verse 15. Has not the one God made you? You belong to Him in body and spirit. So God has made us. We are his. And if we are His, then we ought to withhold nothing of our lives from Him. So that would be the very, very short version of that sermon, but I'm not going to spare you the full uh, unabridged version this morning. I remember actually being brought up in the Church of Scotland. It wasn't that unusual to hear people saying, that's too much, or, or, or that's too far. We, we, need, we need the Bible. I know that we need the Bible, but he's just taken it a wee bit too far. And I remember quite vividly, there's not much I remember quite vividly, but I remember having a conversation with my friend, and he said, that, he, he said exactly that to me. I can't remember who he was speaking of, but he was saying, I know the Bible's important, but that's just taken it a bit too far. And I remember that conversation primarily because of the awkward silence that came after he said that. I wasn't sure what to say, and then I could see the recognition in his eyes that his friend had become one of those weird people who really take the Bible seriously. And it's not unusual in the church environment that I was brought up. A wee bit of religion is good, but keep it reasonable. Keep it quiet. Keep it discreet. And whatever you do, keep it inside church. It's not uncommon to hear in some churches. I've never heard that in any, I've been in a lot of Baptist churches, and I've never heard that in any Baptist church, happily. Never heard it, but I've seen it. And you have too, I'm quite sure. When it comes to my marriage, that's too far, God. You can go this far, but not my marriage, or not my relationships, or not my lifestyle, or not my career, or not my downtime. You know, is there anything that you are keeping back 
from God. All that I have, I lay at the feet of the wonderful Savior who loves me. Can you say that with integrity? Malachi thinks that nothing is too much. Malachi seems to think that God ought to have a say even in who we marry. So those who are single, this is one of these occasions I need to be careful with who I make uh, eye contact, but those who are single and looking to marry at some point in your life, does God get a say in who you choose to marry? Look at verse 11. Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Is this just an Old Testament commandment? Because there are some Old Testament laws that we don't follow as Christians, aren't there? We, we, we no longer follow the, the ceremonial laws which relate to the temple because Christ is our perfect sacrifice once and for all, and Christ is our perfect priest, and we, the church, are the dwelling place of God. We have no temple as they had it under the old covenant, so we don't obey, we don't follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Neither do we obey or follow the civil laws. So under the Old Covenant, God's people are a nation. We have a, we have a theocracy, albeit under a king. And so there are all sorts of laws to guide social and economic and political life as such. But now, under the New Covenant, God's people are from many nations. And Christ is our king. So we no longer need the civil laws, but we do follow the moral laws of God. And so we see them uh, brought from the old covenant into the new covenant, into the new testament. God has written this law on our hearts as he promised to do. And so God has a lot to say about marriage in the new testament and under the new covenant too. Paul for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, answers what must have been a list of pastoral questions about marriage that was given to him from the church in Corinth. And as you get to the very end of that chapter, he says this. He says, a woman is bound to her, her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But... He must belong to the Lord. So different nationality, no problem. Different race, no problem. Different class or, or social status, no problem. Different gods, problem. I have a friend who's the, the pastor of a, a church plant in Glasgow, which is a very different demographic to ours, uh, they, they struggle to attract older people. Uh, I jokingly said we should do a swap. You'll take some of your young people and you can... No, no, no offence intended, of course. Um, but he, he, he stands in front of a church of young people, many of whom are, are not married but want to be married, and he often says the same thing to them. He kind of drills it into them. He says, 
who you marry will do one of two things. It will double your impact for the Lord, or it will half your impact for the Lord. I'm not sure about the ratio, not sure about the maths, but I think the principle is sound. Who you marry will have an impact upon the life you live for the Lord. Uh, and we ought to seek and strive to, to marry someone who will share with us the thing which matters most. So, top of the list, you know, when you're, you're filling out your wee online form on match.com or whatever people do now, top of the list, above all else, someone who loves the Lord and someone who will help you to love and to know and to serve the Lord better. And if it's God's will, if it's God's will, who will help you to have babies who love, who come to love and know and serve the Lord as well. That's verse 15. So, lest I think we've been drifting away from Malachi a wee bit, we'll come back in now. God's people had uh, desecrated themselves, the place where God is present, the people whom the Lord loves, by taking foreign wives. But that's only half of the story. It's only half of the story. Because firstly, they had divorced their own wives. They'd get rid of their wives in order to, to marry these these foreign wives who worshipped foreign gods. Maybe they had got bored. Maybe they had grown up with stories of great heroic adventures about their, their parents or maybe their grandparents who had traveled from Babylon back to Jerusalem and to Judah the battles that they faced when they came back to Jerusalem, the enemies of God's people, the challenges as they were rebuilding the wall, as they rebuilt the temple. They were maybe brought up in these great stories of uh, huge adventures and great battles in the Lord's name. And now here they were. No battles to be fought or to be faced. Everything very still, stable, secure, comfortable. Maybe they were bored. Married with children. And maybe in their boredom they had heard other stories. Stories about these exotic, forbidden, foreign women. Maybe they had heard stories about what these foreign women did to please their gods, and it all sounded very exotic, very enticing. And they decided to divorce their wives. It was easy to do. It wasn't a particularly scandalous thing in the culture of their day. They decided to divorce their wives, to set aside their wives in order to marry one of these foreign, exotic women that they had heard about these women who worshipped foreign gods. And so now we come to verse 16 and a translation issue. I know how much we love translation issues. Here we go. So I'm very conscious that some of us will be reading this passage 
uh, in the old NIV, Pew Bible Translation, 1984. Some of us will be reading in the ES, uh, the new NIV, and some of us will be reading in the ESV. Uh, and it's different when you come to verse 16. So which one is the best translation? So look briefly at the, the two versions of the NIV. I know there are other translations out there, and I know that one or two will probably speak to me about them at the door. I look forward to that conversation. But we're just going to look at the NIV 1984, the Pew Bible, and the NIV 2011, the new version of the NIV. Which one is best? So the old one says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. And then the 2011 version says, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So which one is right? Well, the, the Hebrew words could sustain either translation. So that's probably the most important thing to say. It could be translated either way, but, but the, the Hebrew phrase translated I, or words translated I hate, isn't actually first person singular. So you wouldn't normally translate that I hate. It would normally be, it's third-person singular, so normally it would be, he hates or he who hates. So grammatically, it seems to me that the most natural translation would be the more modern NIV one. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. And actually, I think that fits slightly better with the context of the passage as well. So if you look at verse 10, it says, that's a kind of heading, this is what this section is about. Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? So what God disapproves of in this passage primarily is not so much divorce in and of itself. What God disapproves of is the way that these men, these people, supposedly God's people, have set aside their wives. You know, as if they are possessions to be cast away when they are bored. Like a, you know, a mobile phone, they've, they've decided, they were excited at first, but now they've had a few years with the phone. They feel they've paid their contract off, they want an upgrade, so they just throw their, their wives to one side, get a divorce, easy to do, uh, no one will really frown upon it, and take one of these exotic foreign women as a wife. That's what God disapproves of in this passage. Not so much divorce, not to say that God is a fan of divorce, and I've spoken about divorce, the Lord Jesus teaching on divorce, from this pulpit before, uh, it's, it's, there is provision for legitimate divorce in Scripture, but it's very much the exception and not the rule. So I'm not saying that God is a great fan of divorce, but what He, 
he hates here really is not divorce in and of itself. It's the unloving way in which God's people have treated their own wives. And the way in which they have been unloving and unfaithful to their wives means that they have also been unloving and unfaithful to their God. The two things are, are bound together. I don't know if, if I've explained uh, these passages very well. I don't know if you're confused. If you're not confused, I'll maybe confuse you now, because the ESV, which I haven't put on the screen, is the best of all, I think. In the, in the new version of the NIV, it does lose one thing, which I think is quite a powerful image. It loses the garment. So, in the society of the day, when a man and a woman got married, they didn't have a ring. The man didn't put a ring on the wife's finger. What he did was he took the corner of his garment, and you'll see this in certain places in Scripture, and he put that over her. And that was like a symbol, a, a, a sign as if to say, now you're coming under my protection. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to shelter you. I'm going to look after you. You're going to find safety and security with me. And the Lord picks up that image and he says, you know, this garment, which is supposed to be a symbol of how you were to treat your wife, to love her, to protect her, to provide for her, to shelter her, it's become a garment of violence, not of love. You've cast her away rather than placing your arms around her to shelter and to love and to protect and to cherish and to treasure. This garment has become a garment of violence. And the way that we treat our wives and our husbands, the way that we treat one another, is bound up with the way that we treat our God. We cannot separate them. We cannot treat one another badly and then you know, think that everything is going to be well between us and God, that it will have no bearing, no impact. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by your perfect church attendance. Or by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the gusto with which you sing your songs of praise on a Sunday morning. It doesn't work, does it? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. That's what makes the difference. Or think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or whatever you have done for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you have done for me. We cannot separate the way that we treat one another with the way that we treat our God. They had broken faith with their own wives, and in so doing, they had broken faith with their God. 1 John 3, 14 says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. How foolish they were to be bored with the blessings of God. How foolish they were that they did not realize that the greatest adventure on which anyone can embark, that the most glorious battle that anyone can face and fight, 
And the deepest joy that anyone can ever hope to find is all found in the will of God, not in rebelling against the will of God as they had done for these passing pleasures of sin. But we can be just as foolish as them, can't we? How foolish that they thought they could break faith with their own wives and yet still be on good terms with God. Verse 13, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and you wail because He no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Isn't it obvious? Not to them. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. How foolish. And yet we can think that way with our wives and with our husbands and with our brothers and sisters, can't we? We can act in a way which is unloving, and think that that will have no bearing on our walk with the Lord. And so I ask you, and I ask myself again, how much is too much to give to God? Your marriage, your career, your lifestyle, your life itself, is there anything that you would hold back from giving to Him who has given so much to you? Would you have Jesus as Lord of some, but not Lord of all? The people of Malachi's day had forgotten that nothing is too much to give to God, and I think the reason for that is explained in the first dispute. So, you remember that Malachi's uh, letter or book it's just a series of disputes between God and His people. And I think we ought to see the very first dispute as the root disease which leads to all of the, the secondary sicknesses. So, Malachi 1 verse 2, here is the first dispute. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? We have forgotten the love of the Lord. Though the evidence was all around them, they had forgotten the love of the Lord. And when we forget the love of the Lord, everything else will fall out of its rightful place too. So I read 1 John, we're coming to a close, but I read 1 John 3, verses 14 to 15. Let me read 1 John 3, verses 14 to 16. One more verse. John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we 
ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. There is the key. When we are captivated by the love of Christ, then we will be pleased to give Him our all, not to earn God's favor, but in glad and grateful response for the grace and the love that He has given to us in Christ. We will be glad to give Him our all. We will be free to love one another as we ought to, to love our husbands, to love our wives, to love our brothers and our sisters. We can go further, can't we? To love our friends and our family, to love our colleagues and our co-workers, to love even our enemies. Because we know that whilst we were still sinners, enemies of God, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He first loved us. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus died for us. He gave Himself for us. And we ought to give ourselves to Him and to one another in glad and in grateful response. But Jesus also died, remember, for the joy that was set before Him. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So this is the way for us to follow, to pick up our cross, to die to ourselves, to love, to serve others because we are so grateful that He humbled Himself to live and to die for us so that we might know God as our Father and our friend. And also to give Him our all, to hold nothing back, to die to ourselves because of the joy that is set before us. Our marriages should point to the relationship between Christ and His people, Christ and His bride. He will come again to receive His bride, and what joy we will know on that day. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. How much is too much? 
to give to God. Nothing is too much to give to God. He is the peril of great price. He is the one who is worthy of all that we have and all that we are. And it is in giving Him all that we have and all that we are that we find true freedom and true peace and true and lasting joy. So let's just take a moment to bow our heads, to humble our hearts in prayer, and then having prayed, we will stand to sing when I survey the wondrous cross.